Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Okay, let's get going. Christmas time. Are we feeling Christmassy at all? No, some people are, some people aren't. Um, have we bought our hot cross buns yet? <laughs> no, not yet. Okay, uh, they can leave the cross off. I'll just have the cinnamon bun and toast them. You know, cut them three pieces, toast them in the toaster, put fresh butter on them, let them melt with crispy edges. That anyway. It's exciting time, but you know, it, it's we have Christmas because something happened that was quite tragic and quite sad. It's probably for me one of the saddest passages of Scripture. And I don't know where your mind goes right now, the saddest passages of Scripture. You might go to the crucifixion. You might go to Judas, the betrayal. You might go somewhere else. I'm going to Genesis. I actually think Genesis 3 is the saddest chapter in the Bible because everything we have that's problematic in the world, everything that's sin, flows out of this event. It's the turning point. It's the tipping point. And it's the saddest point in the history of humanity because it starts us off on a bad journey. Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit. It wasn't an apple, so yes, you can eat apples of any style. If you like a good Granny Smith, that's okay. She's one of my forebears, so she invented them. And that would be part of my family blessing to you, if you like Granny Smiths. Um, Exciting stuff. They ate this fruit. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves. Now, that's really creative. I don't know if you've ever tried to sew a fig leaf, but that's amazingly creative to be able to sew fig leaves anyway. Uh, And by the way, fig leaves are probably bigger than some of the clothing people wear at the beach these days. And so, anyway. And they made themselves coverings here we are, that Adam and Eve had been existing and we don't know how long in the garden. And suddenly because of sin, they realise they're uncovered, they're naked. Because of sin, the covering God had for them was now gone. They'd lost it. And so they make a covering for themselves. And God, actually, Adam, Eve, where are you? Like, like God didn't know where they were. He did. What have you done? He knew what they had done. He wanted one to, them to own up what they, what they had done, not to hide. I mean, it's a natural tendency. We do the wrong thing. We go and hide. Children hide. Uh, and then when you catch them out, they look at you bold-faced, chocolate all over their face and say they didn't eat it. You know what it's like. And so Adam and Eve hide. God calls them out on that. And he comes and they're clothed. And God says, what have you done? Now, it's a chance for Adam to own up, but no, he doesn't. He blames God for giving him a wife. Um, I thank God for the wife I've got. Adam blames God for the wife. Um, One minute, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Next minute, you're the problem. You gave it to me, you know. Happens today too in life. But God, it says in verse 21, and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. So God didn't accept the way they were covered. And I'm not talking about clothing, though we should always dress modestly. 
And they were covered. And God provided for them another type of covering. See, they had rejected by their sin the eternal covering, and now they had to make do with what they had in their natural supply. And in the inability to cover themselves properly, God graciously provides a suitable temporary covering. It's a suitable temporary covering. So they lost something and God gave another temporary one. But listen to the psalmist when he talks about God in Psalm 104 and in a number of versions, verse two, it talks of God who says, "Cover you cover yourself with light as with a cloak. ERV says you wear light like a robe. Amplified says you are the one who covers yourself with light as with a garment. And I'd like to suggest that Adam and Eve were probably clothed with light, just like God, David talks, and just like Moses, when Moses came back, if we read back from the encounters with God, when he spent time in God's presence, his face shone so brightly that people couldn't look at him, he would put a veil over his face. And so something about being in the presence of God, let the light of God's glory shine on him that they would not see the face. They couldn't see the nakedness of him in that sense. And I believe God's desire in the end is to bring us back to the place where we are clothed with this light of his glory again. See, this is a problem we have with clothing in the spiritual sense. Listen to Revelation 3. Uh, and this is a small part because I'm not generally using Revelation, but the first three chapters are not apocalyptic. Um, it says this, To the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, verse 14 to 18, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I count you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salves that you might see. See, this church thinks it has everything. But the Lord says it does not know its real spiritual condition of wretchedness and nakedness. The people of this church are self-confident. They're not prepared for the end times or the end of their life or this life. They think they're ready to go to heaven, but are warned that there's something missing. They are naked and in need of a garment or a covering. See, when we're physically naked, we know it. The problem is sometimes it's easy to be unaware of our spiritual nakedness. We, we, we become complacent. We, we get into the place of, as it was, lukewarmness, that place of comfortable. That place of comfortable. And I don't want us to be there. Toward the end of Revelation in chapter 19, it says this in verses seven and eight. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come in times and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, so it's glowing, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of his saints. 
See, the fine linen is represented by the righteousness within us expressed in actions of faith and love. And it points back where I talked the other week about the separation and Jesus spoke about separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. When the sheep are the ones who actually had acts of kindness to people who could not repay them. To the poor, the hurting and broken, they visited, they fed, they clothed, they cared. And they, they did that out of a heart of God. They did it because God cares, they care. And that actions of faith brings us to that. And so I I want us to be the people like the sheep, people on fire for God who care for the hurting and broken. And last week we looked at Jesus' teaching about the wedding banquets. And in one of those, we didn't touch it, but in one of those at the end it says this, the king comes in and he sees someone not clothed in the wedding garments. And that person is taken out. See, You have to have the garments on to get in. You have to have those garments to be a part of this marriage supper of the Lamb. And this banquet representing that. God, am I living in a way that's spiritual? Am I living with a passionate heart for the things of God? And are my actions done out of my relationship with God or just out of doing good? See, doing good is not good enough. Doing self-righteous acts is not good enough. Social clubs do good. I'm not saying they're wrong, but Apex and all those different clubs, you know, I'm, I, you know, not a problem. But that is not righteousness as far as God's concerned. That, that's a righteousness that the world has. In fact, we have no natural inherent righteousness of our own. So what are we to do about it? Because we know there's only one who's righteous and He invites us to come to Him and be clothed with His righteousness. Isaiah says in 64.6, We are all like an unclean thing and our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now please, doing good is something we should do. We should be doing good. But our doing good should be motivated by, by our relationship with God. I'm, I struggle at times with being merciful to people. My time frame on mercy is about three months. So if you haven't sort of changed in three months where that problem isn't gone, I need someone near me who's much more merciful than me because I've had it up to here with people and they go, oh, Pastor, you can't say that from the pulpit. I'm sorry, some of you have got less time than me. Your mercy just doesn't exist. Some of you are far more merciful than me. That's wonderful. But to be merciful beyond that time, I need God. I need to be moved with the heartbeat of God that my mercy and compassion now flows out of that relationship, not my own ability. Because out of my own ability, it's filthy rags. If it's just out of my own ability, it's filthy rags. It can be really good but it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't prepare me for eternity. Zechariah chapter three talks about the need of taking off filthy garments. You can read it yourself. And this this change of clothing, get rid of the filthy and put on the good, put off the old man, it says, and put on Jesus, the new man formed in Christ. Isaiah says this, awake, 
Awake, 52.1. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, the wedding garments, the righteousness of Christ outworked in righteous acts of His saints. And we need to be properly clothed spiritually for the end times and for eternity. We will be clothed again, but we need to prepare and start living now so that we are ready to be clothed with a new body. So we live with the clothing of righteousness now. We live with the garments of praise. We live with those things now, with the clothed with humility. We live with these things now so that when the time comes, it will be normal and natural. Let let me read out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Again, end time stuff. We know that if our earthly house, that's this body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with a habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So Paul is talking about what's going to happen when we are transformed, when the resurrection happens. He's talking about this transformation, this new clothing, this new body. The Bible talks about the dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. It talks about being clothed, but we need to be living that now so that our spiritual being can partake of what God is preparing for us. Is, and, and to be honest, it's going to be different for everyone. See, how we live this life, how we prepare our clothing here determines how our glory is there. Yeah, oh, come on, Pastor. Yes, God is not a communist. Everyone is not equal. When we get there, there will be differences. Let me, let, you may not believe me, let me read what Paul talks about because he, he differentiates and he uses this comparison of the sun, moon and stars. He, he says, you know, in 1 Corinthians, I won't read the whole lot, but basically from 35 to 50, it starts off with, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? In verse 41, it says, as the glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, a glory of the stars, one star differs from another in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So our new bodies will differ in glory, how glorious they will appear based on how we clothe ourselves in this life. How we handle the journey here the depth of our relationship with God, the righteous acts that flow from the righteousness of Christ in our life determines the level of glory in eternity. Now, it's always gonna be good to get in, no matter how how hard it is or whether you're getting with next to nothing. As long as you get in, it's really important. But I wanna get in like we've read with Peter. I wanna have an abundant entrance. I don't wanna get in like just scrape in. I don't want to be that guy that when the door is closing in the tense movie who runs and finally jumps and rolls under the, the steel doors that closes just to get in. I want to be one who gets in with joy. I want to be one who enters with great acclamation to God. And it says this in verse 49, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we'll be clothed just like Jesus but the level of glory of that new body is determined by how we handle the clothing now, how we handle the righteousness of our own life, how we handle, are we living for Jesus with our passion, with our heart? Are we hot, cold or lukewarm? God, I don't wanna be found naked. 
And, and it says in that, there, you know, if we do the right thing, we'll escape the wrath to come. Not God's wrath, the wrath to come, which is just the tragic consequences of rejecting God and rejecting Jesus and rejecting the deliverance that's offered. See, this church in Thessalonians was known by how it lived. Let me, let me look at this in 1 Thessalonians 1. It says this, verse 8, your faith toward God has gone out. In other words, it's on display. And it goes on, verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, one, two, and to wait for His Son from heaven. So they're turning from their old life to live for Jesus, the, the righteous acts of the saints, and, and they're doing that, and they're in that sense, they're living in the, in the light of Jesus' return. They're, people know them. They're known to be a church where the people are living in such a way that it's obvious they're waiting for Christ's return. They're living prepared. They're living hot, not cold, not lukewarm. They're living on fire with a passion for Jesus. How do we know what that looks like? Well, chapter three of 1 Thessalonians, and realistically, this end time stuff really predominantly flows out of Thessalonians and Paul's letters to the church. In chapter three, it says this in verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Abound in love to one another and to all so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, listen, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. So we are to increase and abound in love and love like faith without works is dead, love to one another and to all. I've got a message underway at the moment which talks about the importance of how we treat one another. It looks at the principle of how the church cannot be defeated by the, from the outside by the enemy, but the church stumbles and falls by the internal attacks it has by people in the church who aren't loving one another and who aren't loving the lost and hurting. That's another message anyway for free. We increase and abound in love for one another and for all. That is one of the, the key righteous acts in Christ that we can do. The very fact that God puts us from all walks of life, from unemployed, single, single mums, married families, grandparents, kids, I mean, right across the church, you think about it. People who have low income, people, middle income, people who've got higher incomes. I mean, this church has got people in every walk of life that would not normally have connection with each other except the fact that we're in a church. And we love God, therefore we know each other. And then the Bible says we should abound and increase in love for one another. So we're ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. So the simple point from 1 Thessalonians 3 there is, is growing in love of God and for God and for each other and for the lost is what prepares us. It clothes us ready for the coming of the Lord, ready for the end times. In chapter 4, it goes on in verse 13. Uh, it says, you know, uh, I don't want you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've died or fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God, listen, will bring with Him 
those who sleep in Christ. For this we say to you by the Word of the Lord, that we who are alive remain until the coming of the Lord. So he's talking about the coming of the Lord. He's talking about those who die and talk about we who are alive and remain. And it talks about us being changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And verse 17 says, then we who are alive, so it talks about the dead being raised, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know if you're hopeful and looking forward to that day. I certainly hope that it actually influences the way we live when we claim to be Christian. The Thessalonian church was commended. It lived in such a way. It was obvious they're looking for His return. Their eye was on eternity, not the present. If you get caught up with the present, you will lose eternity. If you get caught up with eternity, you might lose some of this life, but it's well worth it. Paul says that what cost me now, it's not worthy to be compared with the exceedingly weight of glory that will be coming to me. Is this momentary light affliction. Can't compare that with eternity. And so we need to live with what's most important, eternal mindsets. Now, this passage is obviously speaking about the return of the Lord, especially relating to the churches. And just like in Corinthians, Paul is speaking about the moment we are clothed with our new bodies, perfect bodies that will neither decay or get sick. We won't get old We won't get decrepit like I am getting these days. We'll be able to jump those fences and run through leaps and run through troops and jump over walls. I mean, I can't jump over a fence anymore. New bodies. And it it talks about being caught up. That's where we get the word, the departure from the earth, being caught up. Hapazo is the word, to snatch away, to meet the Lord in the air. And while there's heaps of different teachings on end time events, my Spirit-filled Life Bible has eight different versions of sequencing of end time events. They all have a place where the believer goes to be with Jesus. When that happens is the contest. That's where the contention comes. But that it happens is never in doubt. We're gonna go be with Jesus one day and we had best be ready. We had best be ready. Now some have pre-trib, Tribulation, some have mid-tribulation, some have post-tribulation. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. If you stay around church long enough, you will get filtered information about that. But at the end of the day, it just means going to be with Jesus, whether it's before or after problems that happen in the world beyond measure. It's also interesting to note in verse 14, it says, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How can Jesus... How can people come back with Jesus if they're still here in the grave? Their bodies are here. Their bodies are decaying or decayed, but they have gone to be with Jesus and they will come back with Him at that time and get their new bodies. And we will get our new bodies and we will go together to meet the Lord in the air. He brings them with Him. Now, people will fight over that, but I can't see any other understanding when I look at the Scriptures. It goes on in chapter 5 of the first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul talks to them about the, the times and the seasons. And, and Paul says, I don't need to write to you. You've got to understand, Paul has been with this church. He has spoken to them. 
You know, he, he's been sharing orally with them, but he's also sent two letters. The second letter is necessary because there's a problem. And we'll look at that in a moment. Paul says, concerning the times and seasons, I don't need to write to you. You know that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. This day will not overtake you as a thief. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether, listen, whether we wake or we sleep, we should live together with Him. So when you die to go, you be with Him. And then you come back, get your new body. And Paul finishes with a blessing and admonition. He says this, Now may the God of peace, saying Himself, sanctify you completely, make your whole, make your spirit, whole spirit, soul, body be preserved, listen, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, prepared for that moment whether we die or whether it's at the rapture or the catching or snatching away, whether it's that departure to be with the Lord or whether it's when we die, we are to be with Him and He wants us blameless at that moment, properly clothed. So chapter 5 seems to strongly, if not implicitly apply, imply that after we go to be with Jesus, then trouble happens on the world like never before. Then sudden destruction. And some might call that the beginning of the great tribulation. I'm not 100% convinced, though I am 95% convinced. However, regardless of what they say, it seems from this, chat, this, this passage that we are caught to be with Him. Then there's great tribulation and then Christ comes to judge the world and judge in the right context. Listen, not mean, not nasty, but make a rightful allocation of what people are due. So what happens then is, like, like happens in lots of church situations, some religious person or people get the message mixed up. Now I've preached a series on the goodness and kindness and grace of God and that's wonderful. People might get them mixed up that God is, God is so kind, anyone can do anything, get away with it. But now I've preached a series on there's a consequence for our decisions. And if you don't listen to those two together, you might get a wrong understanding. So next week, I'll preach a closing message for both series time together about this. Anyway, religious people come along and then they get their misunderstanding. They, they hear Paul through their lens and they make what Paul says fit their religious doctrines. And then they start preaching that to the church and people get all mixed up. It's apparent that these people either misunderstood, misinterpreted or disagreed and the church becomes fearful that they might have missed the return of Christ in both its snatching away and its final judgment. So Paul starts 2 Corinthians with this passage. Well, in, early in the piece, he greets them. And then chapter 2, it says this. So he's readdressing the problem. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, 
as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So people are now confused. And and Paul is, hang on. In in one passage of verse 5, he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? So Paul is saying, hey, just stop and remember, not just the two letters, but when I was with you, I talked about this. I talked about these days, this day and this other day, the, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together under Him. Don't, that hasn't happened. Don't get confused. So someone has said, you've missed it, that this day has happened. You've missed the rapture. You've missed it. Uh, and, and people are all worried about it. So Paul writes a second letter saying, no, that's not true. Don't believe what other people are trying to say and deceive you. He says in verse three, let no one deceive you. For that day will not come. And your version may say, the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, some people call that falling away the apostasy or, or people leaving church, backsliding en masse to the point that it becomes an event that's noticed. Well, sadly, that's the only place that the Greek word is translated falling away. Almost every other place it's interpreted and translated departure. Departure. So let's read it with the interpretive word. Not, let's read it what the word means, not what the translators have said because many translators don't translate it falling away. Many translate it departure. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come. That day is the day of the Lord that where judgment happens. That day will not come unless the departure comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so it's obvious Paul's referring to two events, the departure of the church. We looked at that in the first book because Paul's talking about, remember, I spoke to you about this. You can't take 2 Thessalonians out of the context of first. First, he's talking about the departure of the church. So the departure word here fits the same. So departure of the church. I told you about this. So Paul's referring to that and the context explains not the translator's bias, but the word means departure. So in two ways, both by oral and the first Thessalonians, the proper interpretation is not falling away, but the departure. And to be more precise, the departure of the church. Because it's the same context of us being gathered to meet the Lord in the air. So we need to reach that. And many scholars agree with that, ancient and new. They've come to realise that 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 falling away is not necessarily, in fact, it's probably a wrong understanding. It's apostasy, not apostasy. Different words mean different, and context. Every other place, departure. We would call it rapture. And so between two events, one called the departure of the church, the snatching away to be together with the Lord in the air where we all see Him, but no one else does. It's come like a thief in the night. Listen, then we go, then great tribulation comes or tribulation or turmoil, whatever you want to say. And then Christ comes back. And the Bible says, when that happens, every eye shall see. So here we have the, like a thief in the night. Here we have Every eye shall see. You can't put those two in the same event. Paul's talking about two events. And he goes on and says this. 
and the man of sin is revealed, who opposes, exalts himself. So this happens after the rapture and the man of sin is revealed. So people are looking for the revelation of the Antichrist. And look, if you're here when that happens, my, my personal view is if you're here when that happens, you are in trouble, right? Uh, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Again, interpreters, translators, sorry, have, have made a mistake clearly. And lots of people have recognised this, not just me. It's not like I'm bringing some new teaching. Lots of people mean it. The, word, the root meaning of that phrase, what is restraining, is essentially made up of two Greek words that means to oppose and to hold. So to hold in opposition. Uh, so oppose something and hold it so it can't come. The inference of hold contextually is that the one who holds has the ability to fulfil the task. Listen, let me say it again. The one who holds has the ability to oppose and do the task. The one, not the which, not the what, the one. Clearly, it's better, better translation would be, and now you know who is restraining, that he, the Antichrist, or the, the, the man of perdition, may be revealed in his own time. The one who is restraining. And you know what? The next verse is self-explanatory. It agrees. It says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains. Why would they use which and not him or the one? Because in the next verse, they use it properly. He who now restrains will so do. So who is the only one that could restrain the Antichrist? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Simple. The answer is the Holy Spirit's the only one that can restrain him. And if the Holy Spirit is leaving with the church, because Jesus said he would never leave us, at the rapture, the Holy Spirit goes with us like, like when he came at Pentecost and then the restrainer is released. It's pretty, to me, it's pretty obvious. And listen, I could be wrong. Listen, I'm, I'm of this view 95%, but I'm not going to crucify people who teach differently or believe differently. As long as we know Jesus is coming, we believe he's coming back. And like all the versions say, we're living in a context of him coming back for us and we are always ready all the time. This is what I see in the scripture. So the Holy Spirit restrains him. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's the second day Paul's referring to. The day of the Lord and our gathering together unto him. And so the coming of the lawless one is the work of Satan. And it says this, and with all unrighteous deception among, listen, those who perish, and listen to the reason. It's not because God's nasty. It's not because God is wicked. It's not because God is vindictive. This is why they perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, people who make God out like He's trying to, He's just vicious and ready to kill people. That is so not true. People have this problem because they refuse the salvation. They refuse it. Just come here. Now, I know you're pretty tall. You could probably step up by yourself. But it's much easier if someone helps you up. 
But if you couldn't do that step, like you're probably tall enough to do it without that. If you couldn't take that step without help and you refuse the offer, whose fault is it that you don't come up? Is it God being nasty or are you refusing the kindness and the love of God? So God is trying to rescue people, but they refuse. It's wrath, but not the wrath of God. They perished because they did not receive the truth. I'd like the musicians to come. So for me, what I believe to be the most likely understanding of Scripture, and listen, we're not looking at the apocalyptic text of Revelation. We're looking at Paul's letters to the churches. That there is a day coming when we will be changed. A day when Jesus comes back the dead in Christ will be raised first and we who are alive will be changed and we'll take on this new body, a glorious body. And the glory of that body depends on how we've lived in the righteous acts of the saints now. How are we living out our faith now? And then after that, there's a great period of trouble on the earth. And then Christ comes back to rule and reign on the earth. As I said, in next week, I'm going to wrap these two series together in an overview. Help us see the bigger picture. There is an end time and it could be nearer than we think. But it might not be. It could be, but it might not be. That's why the Bible says, live prepared, but occupy till He comes. (laughs) Live prepared like the end but occupy till He comes. So wisdom, decisions and occupation, but live in a way that is looking for the return of the Lord. See, in the last series, we talked about the graciousness and kindness of God and that God desires all to come to repentance and escape the consequences of sin. And He has done everything He can without violating our free will to make it possible. However, To be a righteous judge, He must give every person their due reward or consequences. And that's why we differ in glory. And that's why people will receive the wages of their sin. See, people call that punishment. But God cannot separate us from our willful choices. He gave us free will. And if we choose to reject Him, He will accept our decision and it will grieve His heart deeply when He has to say, I can't let you in. I can't let you in. You're not clothed with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I can't let you in. You rejected salvation. You rejected everything I offered and I can't let you in. I have no option but depart from me. Your choice is your destiny. Depart from me. The Bible's clear, the wages of sin is death and eternal separation from God and everything that is God. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, peace, hope, future, joy, faith, love. And if you think about that properly, just sit down and think, what would it be like if I took all those things out of my world? What would it be like if if there was no more love, if there was no more joy, if there was no more peace, 
if there was no more hope, if I had no sense of a future. That'd be hell. And it's what people get when they reject God. And it's not God's fault. They end up because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. He's not going to force people to obey Him. But church, our part is to offer that. Our part is to offer it to everyone we come across. Our part is to show the world the goodness and kindness of God because it's that which draws people to repentance. Our part is to let the light of God shine through us and let the righteous acts of the saints, that let that inner life of Christ, that nature of God that is born again in us when we receive Christ, let it affect every aspect of our being so that our righteousnesses are His and not our own works. Jesus is coming back for His own people and it will be without warning. So we must always be ready. Sadly, in the religious world, there are many who are looking for signs. You can be looking for the signs of His return or you can be looking for His return. Listen, you can be looking for the signs or you can be looking for Him. I'm gonna be looking for Him. The signs will look after themselves. I'm going to look for Him. Listen, I'm going to look for Him. The signs will look after themselves. So if I'm ready, it doesn't matter what the signs are doing because I'll go be with Him anyway. If we're looking for signs, we're not ready. Previous week, we spoke about the 10 virgins or maidens and the five were wise because they live with a constant supply of the oil. Their relationship was full and overflowing. They weren't slack. They were diligent. This is not a game. This is about eternal life. You don't get to start again like in a video game. You don't get an extra life. You don't need to come back and start again with a new life. It's pointed unto man once to die, then judgment. Where God makes a righteous judgment, not mean, not nasty, and will give people either the wages of their sin or their choice when they accepted Jesus, they'll receive the gift of life. They already have, but they will step into that. The writer of Numbers says this, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. But because all these men have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the hand, the land which I swore to give them. So shall those who rejected me. There's only going to be two sides to this story in the end. And you have a choice to pick which side you want to be on. And God doesn't oppose people. People oppose God. Job says you'll be clothed with shame when you oppose God. The psalmist writes this, he's turned my mourning to dancing and put off my sackcloth and clothed me, clothed me with gladness. What do I want, shame or gladness? Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion and rejoice at my hurt. Psalm 35, 26. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonour who exalt themselves. Psalm 132, 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. 
1 Peter 5, 5 says, submit to God and resist the devil. But that comes after this, all you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. I like what Isaiah says as we draw right to the end. Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Let's pray. Father, we need to be people that don't trust in our own righteousness. People that are passionate about our faith. People who are willing to realise that life is about eternity, not about the present only. And the most important things are eternal things. That we would realise that we need to put off the old and put on the new man formed in Christ. That we will be clothed in light, but it only begins when we accept Jesus. And our glory increases as we live the righteousness of God in Christ. And so today in this place, God offers everyone salvation. He says, whosoever will may come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is open door policy. Anyone just come and receive Jesus and find eternal life. Find a new way of living and live that new way out. And the glory will be revealed in and through you. And if you reject Him, I'm, I'm grieved and so is God because there is a consequence and it's not nice. Sometimes I wonder if God cries. I'm sure it grieves His heart. And so today you have a choice. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, with your eyes closed and heads bowed, and after this, I'm going to ask you, would you raise your hand and say yes? If you want to accept Jesus, you want to find this new way of living. It does take a decision to repent, to turn from the old way and live, put on Jesus, live the new way. Learn of Him and live that out. If that's you today, I'd love you to raise your hand where you are. Anyone on the balcony here today? ground floor, anyone here today? Christians, here's the question for us now. What's our clothing like? I pray we're not like this church that thought it was okay but couldn't see that was naked, blind, wretched, miserable. But even in that, Lord, You provide a way out. You offer them. You say, come, come. Come, get gold, get garments. Come, get value. Be clothed with the righteousness of God. Return to the Lord. Can we all stand? Maybe you're not well today and you need prayer. I'm going to open the altar up at the front. Just come out. We will pray for you. 
my wife's sense of love. She's looking after grandbabies down south. But God loves you. And God calls us, church calls us. And I'm not speaking to the world or lost now, I'm talking to us. Is our spirit alive and our heart on fire for Jesus? Or have we been caught up with the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life? And have we become lukewarm? And maybe you just want to come to the altar and say, God, I, I'm, I'm committing my life afresh. You want to do that? Do it on the sides. If you're sick, come to the middle. I just want to pray for those who are sick, but I'm going to leave this altar open if you need to come. Say, God, here I am. I present my life refreshed to you today in Jesus' mighty name. Let's sing that song.